Praise the Lord. Come, let us adore him. Behold our God. We're going to do that as we open the word of God this morning, Luke chapter 17. Luke chapter 17. We're going to be reading verses 1 through 10. We're, uh, we've been um, taking a little vacation or a break from Luke. We left off uh, probably last May, early June, and now I'd like to pick up this wonderful gospel again. And we are uh, in chapter 17. Going to be reading the first 10 verses. Luke chapter 17. Let's give our attention to God's word. Then he said to his disciples, Temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea, than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day, and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink and afterwards you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. Let's ask the Lord to bless his word. Lord Jesus, I thank you that you speak to us this morning in clear tones and, and words. I thank you, Lord, that you speak as our crucified and risen Savior. You died to give us life and and now you're leading us in the freedom that we have, the freedom to forgive. And so I pray, Lord, for your blessing. Give us ears to hear today. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning we are uh, coming to one of the more difficult texts in the Bible, not because it is so tricky to uh, exegete, or to understand, but it, it's, um, it's very difficult to do. Uh, forgiveness is, uh, true forgiveness is, is one of the most painful things, one of the most difficult things uh, often for uh, God's people to do. Uh, it's, Chris Bronze in his book says, there are few things more unnatural and few things more holy than forgiveness. The... Um, I was going to try to take all of this in one sermon today, all 10 verses. There's so much in here, and I've decided we're just not going to do that, so I'm going to um, lay sort of the foundations this week, and then next week we're going to move on and continue to unfold the text, and one of the reasons I want to do that is because uh, this isn't just a, um, a sort of an interesting theological uh, issue. This is a deeply personal issue. It raises... Um, a lots, of, lots of questions this, this issue does. And not hypothetical, mildly interesting, suppose if such and such sorts of questions, but deeply personal questions 
emotionally charged questions, sincerely asked questions, and, and often profoundly difficult questions. As we go through the text, you'll find yourself asking maybe some of these. Well, the text says, uh, if he repents, forgive him. But what if, what if it doesn't really look like repentance? What if they say they're sorry, but they never really change? What about situations where there's physical or sexual or even emotional abuse? How does, what does forgiveness look like in that context? What if I've forgiven the person, but I can't trust them? Do I have to be reconciled to someone even if they've wounded me deeply? Those are the sorts of questions that, that are going to come to your mind, and there'll be many others. And my hope this morning, my confidence is that God has told us what we need to know and that the Holy Spirit's been given to help us apply it. But we'll take our time, we'll go through the text and simply try to understand what is Jesus saying and trust that the Holy Spirit will help us then as we look at our life. And think about how we're to live out this command. I'd like to start with a story of a man named Chris Carrier. Chris, um, when he was a 10-year-old boy, he lived down in Florida. And the week before Christmas, he was walking home from school. And uh, about a block from his home, a man stopped him and, and uh, said uh, he was a friend of Chris's father. And, and that this man was planning a special uh, party for Chris's dad and, and asked Chris if he would like to help. And Chris uh, loved his father and um, happily agreed to do so. And the man um, then had him climb into the, the van and uh, drove him far out of town to a remote location, um, proceeded to begin beating him, uh, straddled him, stabbed him numerous times with an ice pick, uh, then dragged him out of the van, uh, shot him in the head, threw him under a bush and left him to die in the middle of the Florida Everglades. Chris lay there unconscious for six days. Um, shortly after he came to, uh, he was found. He was rescued by some hunters who were out there. Uh, the police thought they knew who did it, but there was never enough evidence to prosecute, and so uh, there was no justice really uh, applied to the case. Uh, Chris had no idea who this man was, had no idea why someone would do this to him. He, does re he did remember, um, as the man was stabbing him with the ice pick, uh, crying out, Father, forgive him. He doesn't know what he's doing. Uh, the, the, the gunshot uh, miraculously did not, did not kill him. It, it did, however, um, destroy his left eye, and, and just so he lost sight in that eye. Chris got on with his life. Um, there were incredible uh, nightmares. Uh, he slept for years at the foot of his parents' bed. Um, and then with the pain of uh, physical pain of recovering. 22 years later, he got a phone call from the police. Uh, an officer uh, explained that an old man was dying in a nearby nursing home, and this man had confessed to the crime. And the officer wanted to know if Chris was interested in talking to him. What would you do? Would you want to talk to this person after 22 years? And if so, what would you want to say to him? This man who tried so callously to take your life. Well, that's what our text is about this morning. It's about forgiving people. People who've done awful things, hurtful things, devastating things. Real forgiveness in the face of real sin. 
Uh, Jesus, as you notice, is speaking to his disciples. We're told in verse 1, he said to his disciples, uh, these, are, these are men that Jesus called, and, and they believe in him, and they're following him. Um, and, and Jesus, as their Lord and Savior, is, is now speaking uh, to them. This is, what you hear this morning is not pious advice from a pastor. Uh, this, is, this is the word of God. These are the words of Jesus who right now sits at the right hand of God who knows you and knows all the hurts that you've experienced. Uh, this, this is the one who gave his life for you. So, so as we listen this morning, let's listen to Jesus. You know, people often say, I, I wish I could just, I, I could have been there to listen and sit at the feet of Jesus. Well, um, Jesus says some hard things. And Jesus is here today by his spirit and his word and speaking these hard things, but good things. He's telling us how to live as his disciples in a sinful, fallen world. We live our discipleship lives in a context of sin. Our sin and other people's sin all the time. We're always dealing with the reality of sin. And Jesus here is is, uh, teaching us how to live in that context and with those realities in a way that honors him, in a way that makes it obvious we're his disciples. So two main points this morning. First of all, facing ourselves, and secondly, forgiving others. Facing ourselves and forgiving others. Facing ourselves, I take from verses 1 through 3a. Jesus, first of all, identifies a reality. Temptations to sin are sure to come. They're sure to come. By God's sovereign design, we live in a world where people sin. And we are in the midst of temptations to sin from the world, from our own flesh, from the devil himself. Just wonder if you've experienced any of that this week. Any temptations to sin, to gossip, to anger, impatience, greed, lust, covetousness, laziness. Have you, have you been tempted to sin this week? Well, if you were if you were comatose, right? You, you did. If you're awake, you were tempted this week. That's the world in which we live. Jesus is just verifying that this is not a mistake. We didn't end up in the wrong universe somehow. This is the world that he's called you to live in and me to live in by his sovereign decree. And he's called us to live right here in a fallen world and in a not yet perfected church with with uh, not yet perfected brothers and sisters in Christ to live in a way that honors him. So that's the reality. Temptations to sin are sure to come. And then the warning. But woe to the one through whom they come. I think we, uh, we tend to pay attention to the sins as Christians that we experience So when someone sins against us, we pay attention to that. We pay attention as Christians to sins that we commit. But I I don't think we pay much attention to the sins or the temptations that we cause. We're aware of temptation when it happens to us. We're aware of temptation when it overcomes us. But when's the last time you really thought about the, the temptations that you caused? Riken says, we tempt others to sin anytime our actions or attitudes set a bad spiritual example. For instance, he lists a complaining spirit that, that tempts others to join us in our disbelief and discontent. So when we grumble out loud, uh, 
saying in our actions and words, God is not good, God's not sovereign, and we're tempting people to join us in our grumbling. Gossip that encourages other people and tempts them to think poorly of a brother or sister or another person. Uh, enticing someone to commit sexual sin, either by dress or by speech or by coercion, by a joke that should not be told. Questioning or denying the teaching of Scripture in some way that undermines someone's confidence in the Word of God. Right? Living as if the Word isn't true, or, or maybe teaching that in some way it's not as true as we thought. And, and Jesus speaks here of his little ones. Woe to the person who causes one of my little ones to stumble, who puts a, a block in front of them so that as they're walking their, their, their pilgrim path here as a young Christian, you, you lay something in front of them and they stumble over it and they fall into sin. Jesus is talking to his disciples He's talking to people who are mature believers here, particularly that we have an obligation and responsibility to younger Christians, children, literally, and children in the faith. It's a great, it's a, it's a warning to be taken seriously by those in, spir- in spiritual in, uh, leadership positions, pastors and elders and deacons and Sunday school teachers and parents. We're often a, a, a cause of stumbling for our children as parents. If we live hypocritical lives, pointing out their sins and their failures and never confessing and acknowledging our own, never really bringing the gospel to bear to our life or theirs. Woe, you see, if to the one through whom these temptations to come. I, I think specifically Jesus is talking about teaching here that would mislead, that would undermine, undercut the faith, the confidence of God's young people, young children. I've, I've talked to college presidents about this verse, because I think Christian college presidents specifically are often guilty of not taking this seriously. I had a conversation with, with one Christian college professor who um, advocates having uh, false teachers come across their, their stage and give presentations uh, so that uh, the, the kids get a, a broader understanding of uh, uh, you know, Christians from different perspectives and different points of view. And, and, uh, and I asked this president, okay, when that guy gets done advocating what you and I both agree is contrary to the word of God, when he gets done and when he gets off the stage, then who gets up there right after him to explain the truth of the word of God? And he says, well, no one does. He says, I trust, I trust that if students have questions that they can go to their teachers, they're professors, and they can ask the questions of their professors. I said, what about the kids that don't have questions? What about the kids that just take that, and and you've put this man up on your stage in your chapel, and you've stamped the imprimatur of your institution upon whatever he's saying, and the kids walk out of there, and they don't have questions. As a college president, I'm talking to you as a pastor, I think you are placing a stumbling block in front of God's kids, and God's word says, woe to those through whom temptations come. It's a serious thing, you see, to take responsibility, to have oversight over God's little ones. Temptations are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. And he used, Jesus uses very strong language. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. 
Now, this is Jesus meek and mild to talking, right? That's where we have the version of Jesus who just speaks this nice flowery language. That's not the biblical Jesus, is it? A millstone, boys and girls, you know what a millstone is? It's a very, very large stone, a very, very heavy. It would take maybe 10 men to pick one up. It's used to grind out grain in a mill. And, and so Jesus is saying, better that you would take that thing, there would be often a hole in the middle of it where the, the, the shaft would go. Jesus says, better take that millstone, drape it around the neck of a person, and then dump them into the sea. Now, boys and girls, what would happen to that person? Well, it doesn't take a lot of scientific expertise to know that there would be a immediate, inescapable, very direct and rapid descent to the bottom of the ocean. So Jesus says, better that. This awful way to die. No, no one, you know, as they think about their, their coming death, no one thinks to themselves, you know, that would be a nice way to go. It's an awful way to die. And, and yet Jesus says, I'm going I'm to give you a comparison. I'm going to give you two examples, this and that. Uh, over here is having a millstone tied around your neck and dropped into the sea. And, and so you can have this or you can have this. Which one? And Jesus says, take the millstone. Better. Better the millstone. So the question you see that it, it, it begs is, what could possibly be so awful that, that the millstone is the better option? And the answer is, the horror of being held accountable by a holy God for the spiritual harm you cause to one of his children. There's, there's probably nothing that will arouse the anger and wrath of an adult more quickly than someone who is harming your child. If you're a father or a mother, you see yourself as a reasonable, sane person. You tend to have a certain level of self-control over your emotions and then you're, you're walking uh, to school maybe to pick up your child and you notice he's out in the playground and there are three bullies around him beating on him. Then what? The gloves come off. You turn into a, a, a raging whirlwind of, 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 of vengeance. Because nothing, nothing upsets you more than that that, that people would take advantage of your little child and, and, and abuse and beat your little, your little child. No, nothing. That's what Jesus is talking about. You see, that, that there is a heavenly father who's, who's, who loves these little ones, and, and, and he, he's intensely offended when people either carelessly or intentionally cause spiritual harm to one of his little ones. You see, there, there's the horror of facing the wrath of the Lamb. Revelation 6 speaks of it. Verse 15, Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us. Hide us 
from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? You see, those people at that moment are experiencing exactly the better the mountain fall on me, better the millstone be tied around my neck than this. The wrath of a holy God, an avenging Father. So that's what Jesus is saying. Better a millstone tied around your neck. We need to take sin very, very seriously. We need to take the sin that we cause other people to commit, the, the, the ways that we tempt other people to sin. We need to take it extremely seriously. So Jesus says, pay attention to yourselves. It's, it's, it's a command, imperative. You see, we tend to be good at paying attention to other people, at paying attention to their sins. We're not as good about paying attention to our sins. And Jesus here is specifically saying, pay attention to you, to, to, to what you do. And it's not pay attention to your, your safety or your protection or your feelings or your desire, your will. It's pay attention to your sin. And the Greek word here means pay careful, close attention. Study this thing. Take appropriate action where necessary. Consider your sin in, in light of a holy God. Con consider how inexcusable your sin actually is in light of all the grace that God has shown to you, all the kindness he's given to you. Never once really bringing the consequences of your sin upon your head, dealing with you not according to your sin. Think of, think of what your sin actually deserves and then what it required in the suffering of Jesus Christ on the cross. Think about how your sin is part of the devil's cause and works for the devil's kingdom. Pay attention to yourselves. That's what Jesus says. Now, why does he, why does he start there? Well, he starts here because he's going to talk about a serious issue. Remember, he's, we live in the context of sin, real sin. And forgiveness is fundamentally about dealing with sin. It's not about feeling better about someone. It's not about just being kind to someone. It's about dealing with real sin, real wrong, real crimes, and, and, and doing so in a serious, God-honoring way. But you see, you can't possibly deal, deal seriously in a God-honoring way with someone else's sin when you're not dealing seriously in a God-honoring way with yours. It's just not, it's just not possible. It's, it's the epitome of hypocrisy to deal seriously with someone else's sin, right? The Pharisees were good at this. We've caught, we've caught the woman in adultery. We've, we, 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 we've, uh, we've got the, the, the goods on this guy. He's a sinner. We all know he's a sinner. Jesus, what are you going to do? And what Jesus often does just turns them to face themselves. So, you see, pay attention to yourselves is, is necessary as if we think about dealing seriously with a serious issue, the reality of sin and, and how we're to, to deal with that. And, and, of course, a serious consideration of the reality of your sin will, will help you taste, again, the grace of God to you in a way that will make you graciously forgive others and willingly forgive others and even eagerly forgive others. You see, the church of Jesus Christ, following the one who forgave us all of our sin, should be defined by forgiveness. It ought to be just known. It's what Christians do. 
They, they forgive each other their offenses, even great offenses. They, they, they're always leaning into forgiveness. They, they love to forgive one another. Now notice, the fact that we are to pay attention to ourselves and the fact that we sin, Jesus does not use that fact to say, when someone else sins against you, don't worry about it. Some people will try to play this game. Maybe we've done it to ourselves where we, someone has sinned and has offended us and we've tried to deal with it by saying, it's, it's just really not that big a deal. I just need to get over it. Well, sometimes that's true. Not because it's not a big deal. It's always a big deal. But love is sometimes all that's required to say, in light of the graciousness of God to me, I, I don't, I'm, it's gone, it's done. It's overlooked. It's okay. It truly is okay. But sometimes, you'll, you'll be sinned against in a way that, that so disrupts the relationship that it's, it's not going to work to say. It's not God-honoring to say. I'm, I'm just not going to bother with it. Jesus gives us a path, a, a, a pattern to follow when uh, someone sins against us in that way. So, to actually deal with the sin. So we look at forgiving others. If your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. The command, forgive. It's not an option. It's not something that sort of is up here on the higher echelons of the spiritual life. If you want to be a really, really you know, serious Christian, you want to be a really good Christian, then you, maybe you could aspire to this as well. You could be somebody who, who loves to forgive. It's not that at all. This is, this is Christianity 101. The Bible says that if you don't forgive, if you won't forgive, you won't be forgiven. Matthew 6, 14. If you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will forgive yours. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. It's commanded. You must. That's what Jesus says. But he, he shows us clearly how to go about this. The pattern. If your brother sins. Notice, not if, if he violates your feelings. Not if he does what you would rather he didn't. It's not a disagreement. It's sin which is a violation of God's commands. Think second table, ten commandments. And the assumption is that it's been committed against you because you, you're now called to go and rebuke and, and forgive. So, so they sinned. They disobeyed your authority, violation of the fifth commandment. They caused injury to you or to your reputation, or maybe acting unjustly in anger, or, or they gossiped about you, violation of the sixth commandment. They sin sexually against you, either against your person or against your covenant vows, your marriage or your marriage bed. Some way you, you've been sinned against sexually, violation of the seventh commandment. They stole from you in some way. They lied to you. They lied about you. So, so we're talking actual offenses against the holy law of God and against the person of God, which also involve offenses against you. Jesus does not deny that these are offenses against us. They are. But they're not only that, and they're not first of all that. They're first of all offenses against God. We're, we need to move to it. It's not just a, a horizontal personal person thing. We need to see that there's sin here, which means they've, they've offended the law of God. 
And that offense of the law of God and, and, and towards us needs to be dealt with. So what do we do? Jesus says, rebuke him. This doesn't mean go yell at him. It doesn't mean try to make them feel bad. How could you? A rebuke is not a punitive action. It's not bringing punishment somehow. It's, it's, it's not trying to apply the, the, the sentence of the law. A rebuke is simply going, showing someone their sin according to the word of God and calling them to repentance. Brother, you should not have done this because it's contrary to the word of God. It's contrary to who you are as a Christian. It's contrary to the will of Jesus Christ. This should not have happened. And, and I'm begging you, brother or sister, I'm, I'm calling you to repent. I love you. I'm concerned about you. Repent. That's, that's a rebuke. Peter, uh, Paul does this to Peter in Galatians chapter 3 when he says, I had to publicly, because Peter was doing this publicly, I had, to, I had to rebuke him because his actions were not in keeping with the gospel. He was saying one thing and doing something else. He wasn't, he wasn't living in accordance with the gospel. That's sin. And, and so Paul rebukes Peter and Peter repents. We're to do it graciously, humbly, We've sinned too. We understand the temptations. We understand the weakness of the flesh. But brother, sister, I love you. This is sin, and I'm asking you to repent. If he repents, forgive him. We're going to deal, Lord willing, next week with what role does repentance play? How does that work? But Jesus says if he repents, forgive him. Now, a lot of Christian forgiveness goes off the rails here because it's, it, it's not really forgiveness. Uh, Lewis Smedes wrote a, a book probably 20 years ago that, um, that really set the tone that when Christians talk about forgiveness, we, we talk about just sort of letting, letting it go, forgiving someone because otherwise uh, it'll affect you. So it's sort of self-therapy. It's good for you. Uh, that, that's, not, that's not Christian Forgiveness. Christian forgiveness isn't a feeling. It's, it's not uh, a decision to just not hurt anymore or not, not be angry anymore. It's a promise that you make. A specific promise that the offense will be placed behind you and it no longer has ramification or an impact on the relationship. The offense itself is done. It's gone. It's forgiven. And you're going to move on now towards a reconciled relationship. The reason we know that that's what forgiveness is because the Bible says forgive as God forgave you. And so when God forgives us, he commits himself, you see, to removing sin, our sin, from the relationship. He makes a promise. He goes on record before all the angels of heaven and before the whole world. He goes on record to say it's done. It's gone. That sin no longer has a bearing. It's as if it had not happened. Isaiah 43, 25. I, even I, am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and remembers your sins no more. He's not going to bring it up. It, it does not mean there might not be consequences. God will lovingly discipline us at times with the consequences of our sin, but it has no implications for the relationship we have with him. It's gone. That's, that's 
That's good news. If you're a sinner, and if you're interested in having a relationship with the God who made you, if, if you want to dwell in the secret place of the Most High, abide in the shadow of the Almighty, if, if, that, if that interests you, and you have a sense of the truth of your sin, how awful, how inexcusable, how stupid, to think, how could God forgive me again? This, this, is, this is magnificent news. This is at the core of the gospel. God has made a way in Jesus Christ to, to take your sin, you see, and hang the millstone around your sin and drop your sin into the depth of the sea. It's gone. And all of that in Jesus Christ, who we were not asking for. We weren't looking for him. I was found by those who did not seek me. But in love, God gave us his own son. And in love, God placed that son on a cross, bearing our sin, your sin. And in love, God then punished Christ so that our sins would be remembered no more. It's magnificent. The wonder of being forgiven. God says, Hebrews 8, 12, I will be merciful towards their iniquities. I will remember their sins no more. And the reason that God forgives you is not simply so that you might be forgiven. The reason God forgives you is so that you and he can be once again in a relationship. So that he can dwell with you and you can dwell with him because your sins are gone. Your offenses have been removed. Forgiveness and reconciliation and relationship always go together. Bronze says this, forgiveness is inextricably linked to reconciliation. The assumption today seems to be that you can forgive someone but not be reconciled to them. But we're to forgive as God forgives and God never forgives without being reconciled to them. God never forgives and says, but I don't want to be with you anymore. This is what Chris Carrier had to face with his abductor. 22 years later, he gets a phone call. The man um, who had tried to kill him, his name was David McAllister, he had worked for Chris's uncle, been fired, and in retaliation against the family had decided to kill Chris, this young 10-year-old boy. And now 22 years later, he's dying, he's on his deathbed, and he's confessed his crime, and the police officer saying, would you like to talk to him before he dies? Well, Chris did want to do that. His desire all those years had been that the man would confess. He was concerned about his soul. And so Chris went and talked to the man, and the man did confess his sin, and, and Chris took his hand and said, I forgive you. And that started a friendship. Over the next weeks, Chris visited often, one week five times in one week, and, and, and shared the gospel with David McAllister, the man who tried to kill him. And David became, uh, to faith, became a Christian. In fact, uh, McAllister told a reporter who had heard this was happening and, and intrigued, came to investigate. McAllister said that Chris is the best friend I've ever had. There's this wonderful relationship. How was Chris able to do that? Well, he was a, he was a Christian. And he had faced himself, he'd faced his own sin, he'd faced the beauty of God's grace to him in Jesus Christ, and he heard the words of Jesus to forgive those who have sinned against him. And so his, his, his lean all through those years was to forgive if he ever had the opportunity and if the man would repent. And when that happened, forgiveness was granted. And the reporter said this, this man, Chris, is serious about God. 
I don't say that because he has a master's degree in divinity and, and directed the youth ministries at his church. I say it because he bowed alongside a man who tried to kill him. I know I couldn't do it. Yet Chris tried against all logic to redeem one weak and dirty little scrap of a man. Friends, that's what the gospel can do in our lives. Against all logic, against all the counsel of maybe friends you're saying you, you need to run, you need to hide, you need to hold on to the wrong. The logic of the gospel moves us in exactly the opposite direction. Temptations to sin will come. We will be sinned against and we'll sin against others. But the logic of the gospel always, you see, gives us the opportunity to, to manifest grace, to rebuke someone in love, to call them to repentance, and then to be reconciled to them. It's what we must do because we're Christian. It's what we can do because the gospel's true, because Jesus did all this and so much more for you and for me. Love so amazing, so divine demands my soul and my life and my all. And so uh, I'm going to close up with just inviting you to think about your life. Pay attention to yourselves. Think about the ways that you've tempted other people to sin. And if you have tempted other people to sin, what do you need to do to make that right? Where do you need to go and confess that your poor example, your poor, uh, your poor behavior, your poor attitude is, has tempted others to sin and, and, and maybe your specific actions? Maybe someone has sinned against you. Jesus is talking to you today. He loves you. He died for you. He's calling you to live in the freedom you have in the gospel to forgive. May God be glorified in it. Amen. God in heaven, you know us. You know the sins that we've committed. You know the sins that we've suffered that have been committed against us. You know how easily we, we rely on wisdom that is not from above. We justify our actions in a host of ways. And Father, we confess that we're, we're nervous about living like this, about being so willing to forgive. It feels like losing maybe control. It feels like risking being hurt. What if it happens again? Thank you, Lord, for your challenging words. If it happens seven times, you'll give the grace to forgive us. And, and thank you, God, that you, that's exactly what you've done with us. We've, we've come a thousand times. And every time, there's grace as we confess our sin. Lord, help us to live like Jesus. I pray that your love and grace to us would be so magnificent that we could not help but forgive and be reconciled as we live in this fallen world in a not yet perfected church, but with our eyes on Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. We're going to respond to the word when I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died. Let's stand and sing. <laughs>